0: Thank you, Diana. Thank all of you for being here today. It's a great uh, joy and privilege to have this opportunity to get into the Book of Romans with you. Um, If you've been with me before on any of the studies of John or Isaiah, you know that we uh, will typically go a little slowly at the beginning because we're going to go deep laying a foundation, and then we'll, we'll build up upon that. So you might, you might be excused for thinking in the first couple of uh, uh, two, three weeks going, uh, uh, at this pace, Jesus is coming back, and we'll only get to chapter four or so, and uh, so what's going on? So I just mentioned that at the outset so you don't uh, get overly alarmed by that, by that fact. I think I we need to say just a couple of things about what we're doing as we begin the study. First of all, let's realize that we're studying the Bible. I know that's, you know, oh, good, more shattering glimpses of the obvious. Um, When you're dealing with sacred Scripture, you're dealing with something which is at once a very human document. It's written in a particular time uh, to a particular people who first encountered it, And it meant something to them, and for you and I to know what it means, we need to ask what it meant, which means we have to root things in history. So we're going to talk quite a bit about history and the setting of Romans and the people of Rome and what's going on there, and the reason for that is because Christianity is not a philosophy. Christianity is not simply a set of intellectual propositions that are posted out in in the sort of mid-air for us to try to get our heads around. Christianity is a faith which is rooted in history, in events. In fact, it's so rooted in event that if the event of something like the resurrection of Jesus did not actually occur, then Paul says, we are of most people most to be pitied and we should just give everything up and go find something productive to do with our mornings. So, Christianity is a faith which is rooted in events, it's not philosophy, it's not even first and foremost doctrine, it's first and foremost a person, a person in a particular time and the events about that person and those events lead to doctrines, they lead to what we believe about that person and so we have to root things in history romans is a particular kind of literature as well it's not a prophecy in fact it's a rather lengthy letter and it's a particular kind of letter at that we'll get into every bit of that it's written in the greek language so we need to understand a little we're going to make quite a few more references to greek in this study than we would on a sunday morning the old saying is that Um, Greek in a sermon on Sunday. Greek language is a little bit like underwear. It should be there, but it should never show. But on Wednesdays, we'll be breaking out quite a few of those words, and you shouldn't let that intimidate you. You should just kind of make note on that and kind of bring those on board. And when you have questions, you should note those because here's, here's something we should say at the outset too. It's no good me standing up here saying things which aren't clear. Even if they're clear to me, if they're not clear to you, there's really no point. So if you have, if I say something and you go, what, what, what in the world? Um, you know, then make a note of that question. Maybe just do a big question mark in your study guide or on your notes or whatever you're doing, and then circle back to it. We'll always try to leave room for questions so that we can unpack that a bit more. That's especially true if you want to disagree with me. Okay, because because it's important that you do so. I am with you not just as a teacher because we're dealing with God's word, but I'm with you as a student. I'm with you as somebody who is going to be just as much at a table with you looking at the book of Romans as I am somebody talking and exploring Romans with you. So I have so much to learn When it comes to the book of Romans, I'm not here uh, saying that I've got this thing sorted. In fact, Romans, a little bit like the book of Revelation, um, is one of those books where if somebody stood up and said, I've got the whole thing figured out, that's probably a good reason to run in terror right away. Uh, It's a humbling book. It's a very dense book. It's a book which, into which Paul packs a tremendous amount of material. Every word is precious. And that is seen by the way in which it has not only impacted people through history, but the way in which people have tried to approach even teaching others in regard to its instruction. So I'm with you not just as a teacher. I'm with you as a student. I was asked several years ago, what's the very first thing you're going to do when you get to heaven? sitting with a group of pastors, and they were talking about that. And, uh, you know, a lot of them were a lot more spiritual than me. We're talking about going to see Jesus. One wanted to go see Adam and chew him out. Um, you know, is that, I mean, it was a very interesting story. Of, and my answer was, I'm going to go find Paul as fast as I can and get into his class on Romans. Um, St. Peter wrote, Our brother Paul has written some things which are hard to understand. So can I just say that if the first pope was confused by, by, by some of what Paul said, then um, we have, you and I have every uh, excuse for going, now, now, now what? What is he talking about? That was also a little bit, if you're not familiar, some of my sarcastic sense of humor. So that will show up far too frequently probably, but uh, we'll, have, we'll have some fun with it nonetheless. What are we trying to do at the end of the day? Well, Paul wrote to Timothy, and this is uh, at the very start of your study guide, that the goal of our instruction, this is from the New American Standard Bible, which is the version I'll be largely teaching from. Whatever version you have is fine. Um, We'll, in fact, interact on different versions, but I'll be reading primarily from the NAS. But Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, The goal of our instruction is that you might pass a theological exam and be the most cerebral Christian on the block. No, that's not it. He said the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. So the goal of our instruction, our Bible study together, is actually not to produce a purely cerebral expansion, but something that's an expansion of the heart. Love for God, love for each other, love for the truth, love for our neighbors. That our consciences are shaped by the gospel, which is at the heart of what Paul's talking about in his letter to the Romans, so that our conscience, in Luther's words, is captive to the word of God, and our conscience we know is cleansed by the blood of Jesus and our faith is unfeigned our faith is sincere our faith is deepened our trust our rest in Jesus Christ is deepened so this means that as we come to the study of Romans we're going to have to take our time we're going to take our time uh, this is a this is projected to be a two-year course Okay. So we're going to get through chapter 3 by, God willing, right, by Christmas, okay, by the Christmas break. And then we'll take up 4 through 8 in the second term. And then, and then if you're still brave and courageous, and next year return, then it's 9 to 16. Okay? So that's the projected plan. Now, I say that it's a projected plan because along the way, we'll probably, as you know, if you've been with me before, hit a couple of places where we just slow it down. There are some spots where it feels like you're swimming through peanut butter when you're, when you're, you're dealing with Romans. So, it's important to go slowly and to let that passage sink in. Of course, of course you can overdo it. Um, We don't want to go so slowly that by the time you get to chapter 11, you've forgotten what's in chapter 2. So we'll try to keep everything repeatedly in front of us. So what are we trying to do? Well, I put in your study guide, not to exhaust the text or ourselves. What do I mean by that? Well, we're going to teach Romans, but Romans is itself inexhaustible. Uh, I have several linear feet of shelf space full of books on Romans, and there's a lot of ink that's been spilled on this remarkable epistle from Paul, and you can spend the rest of your life studying it. And so we could go deep, really deep, really fast. And so just like I'm saying we're going to go deep in some places, there might be some other spots where you go, oh, you went too fast. I want to dwell there. We're not gonna be able to exhaust everything, but we want to be diligent and we don't want to exhaust ourselves. But we want to open up the inspired text and be instructed and inspired by its truth. And look at this then, gain the tools needed to pursue its depths. One of the hopes that I have is that by the time we we wrap up the study together, that we've put some tools in your hands so that when you go study Romans again in the future or any other books of the Bible, you picked up some tools so that you know how to study scripture more effectively and you know how to teach other people more effectively. That should kind of happen over the course of time as well. And in so doing, love and cherish Jesus Christ more deeply and truly, engage his mission more radically, and rest in the gospel more completely. That's what we're trying to really do. So rooted in history, Understanding what Romans meant so we know what it means, we should have something happen in us as we study together that leads us to a place where we rest in the gospel of Jesus, we cherish and love the Lord Jesus, and we become much more radical in our devotion to the mission that Jesus has called his people to because Romans was written by a man on a mission theology in the new testament was not an academic exercise it wasn't done by people sitting in a library in a kind of static situation the work that they were doing was done on the move letters were written from places like prisons they were constantly on the move so this is theology which is engaged with people so what people what were they like Perhaps a good place to uh, uh, begin with understanding is the uh, epistle to the Romans is to grasp the world situation in which Paul is writing to these people, and in which Jesus moved and did his ministry. It was a world that was dominated by, the, by Rome, the city of Rome, Roman religion, Roman politics, Roman power. In Mark's gospel in chapter 5, there's a fascinating account of Jesus' Jesus and his disciples coming across the lake. And they come to the other side, and immediately it says, they met a man who was demonized. This man could not be bound by chains. He broke them. He stripped himself naked. He clawed at his own body. He lived in the tombs. And everyone was afraid of him. And when he saw Jesus walking towards him, he ran towards Jesus, screaming. And Jesus addressed the demonic entity that held that man in its terrible sway. What is your name? And do you remember what the demon said as it spoke from the man? My name is Legion for we are many legion is a Roman military term there's a certain sense in which this man is a picture of the whole world the whole world the known world was possessed by Roman legions Israel saw itself in slavery to Rome Israel saw itself as in chains and in darkness. Israel saw itself as naked and ashamed, not possessing the glory that they were supposed to have. And there were elements within the Israelite society like the zealots. That was a political terrorist group of people that sought to overthrow Roman rule and kill the Romans, carry out acts of violence against them, the kind of people's liberation front of Jerusalem, who hoped for a Messiah who would come in and destroy Roman power, a military commander. But the Messiah that God sends is a different kind of Messiah. He does cast out legions. He does deliver Israel. He delivers Israel from a greater slavery. But no one who first heard that text in Mark would have had any any problem understanding that the power that was so dominant in the world, enslaving the world of its time, was Roman military power. It was legion. And the truth is that Christianity, The Christian faith and the message that Paul preached, the message that he wrote to the Christians in Rome, the capital of the empire, eventually liberated and converted the entire Roman world. Jesus, of course, cast that demon out of the man. Do you remember what happened to the demons? They went into what? They went into the pigs and the pigs, they went down into the sea. It was the end of legion power. And the truth is that Jesus Christ, by his cross, which was death at Roman hands, under Roman governance, liberated the world of his time. That liberation spread all over the empire. And maybe a good way to kind of back ourselves into the study is to think about the extent of the influence of this, of this work. Here's a depiction of two famous Christian martyrs, Perpetua and Felicity, or Felicitas, a noble woman living in North Africa, Carthage, in the 200s, who, along with her servant, was put to death for her Christian faith. In the 200s, in the 200s, Christians were routinely persecuted and put to death under Roman legion power. They were chained. They were stripped naked. They were put into the arena. And so here in North Africa, there's Roman power that exists. And some of the very first martyrs, this noble woman and her servant who was so committed to her and to Christ that she could not be separated from her, were willing to lay down their lives. Not that much longer. After that, in the early part of the 300s, in the 4th century, a Roman emperor named Constantine would undergo a conversion to Christianity. Now, some people are under the misconception that Constantine made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. That's not what happened. That happened later under Theodosius. But what Constantine did was he made the Christian faith licit. He made it legal. He ended all the persecution of Christians in 313 in the Edict of Milan. He moved the capital of the Roman Empire (laughs) from Rome further to the east in uh, a place called... Byzantium, and he renamed and rebuilt that area, uh, humbly calling it after himself (laughs) Constantinople, Constantinople. And Constantinople became the new center of power for the Roman Empire, yet Rome itself, the ancient western capital of the empire, retained a kind of romantic attraction deeply powerful symbol for all the people who were citizens of that empire. Finally, in the 400s, Rome itself fell. Even though Constantinople did not fall for another 1,000 years, Rome fell. Rome fell. And when it did, when it did, some of the people blamed Christianity because Christianity had supplanted the other gods. You see, one of the things about the Roman gods is that the Roman gods held up the Roman state well, when Constantine was converted, when he was converted and he built Constantinople, uh, he built an underground water cistern area so that if the city ever had a siege laid to it, they would always have fresh water supplies. If you've ever been to that city, it's now called Istanbul in Turkey, and you go, you can go underground and you can go down into the cisterns and there you'll see in those cisterns these giant columns. I'll show you a picture next week. Giant columns. And at the base of the columns are the heads of all the old Roman gods that Constantine tore down. And he turned their heads upside down and put them underwater and he put the columns on top of it to say these gods are no longer the gods that we serve. So, The Christian faith went from being this persecuted minority to being a substantial community of people that toppled the gods. And when Rome fell, some people said, well, that's Christianity's fault. And Augustine, who was writing not that far from where Perpetua and Felicitas were martyred, not that much longer after their death, wrote a book called The City of God as Rome fell, to say, no, the city of man is one thing, the city of God is another. We're part of the city of God, and the cities of men will fall, as do all of its empires. You can see from this map, 117 A.D., how vast the Roman Empire was. This is about 50 years after the death of Paul. And you can see it involves not only the ancient Near East, but stretches over across the north side of the arabian peninsula up across europe and north africa and as far north as hadrian's wall the border between the ancient border between england and scotland this vast empire was ruled from rome and it is there as well that early christians established communities of faith how did that happen how is it that some people came to be in Rome who were believers in Jesus? Well, for that, we've got to go back to Jesus being crucified. We say when we do the Apostles' Creed, he was crucified for us under, say it, Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman procurator of the day. When he was crucified, it was typical for a criminal to have his charges posted above his head on that cross. Was called the Titulus. There's the charges against him. Pilate had written on Jesus' Titulus above his head, the King of the Jews. And he wrote it in three languages he wrote it in Latin, he wrote it in Greek, he had it written in Hebrew. Those three languages represent the dominant streams of the ancient culture in which Paul is moving and doing his work. He will speak Greek, he will speak. Hebrew. He knew Latin. Paul had the equivalent of basically two PhDs in his day. We'll get into his life and what made Paul, Paul, just as we we carry on with the study a little bit further. But those three languages created the culture in which the book of Romans rises. Latin was the official language of Rome. And Rome established a one-world government. If you think about that map we looked at just a moment ago, that vast empire, nobody needed a passport to go between the various places within that empire. It was the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. It governed that whole vast part of the world. You, went under, you were under one government, whether you were over here, in the Near East, on the borders with Persia, all the way over to Spain and up into England, if you sailed into what we think of today as England, though it wasn't called that at the time, in the ancient port city of Londinium, and you made your way up through the countryside to Hadrian's Wall and peeked over it to look at the crazy Scots, the future Presbyterians over there. Well, the Romans had established this world government But the common language of everyday people was Greek. Latin was an official language, a scholarly language. But Greek is what everybody spoke because the Romans basically took over the territory and the culture of the Greeks, their architecture, their gods, and so on. They basically made Roman, and they kept the Greek language. It was the lingua franca, of the day. So the New Testament is written in Greek because it was a universal language for a universal empire. The Hebrew people had been dispersed all over that empire. They weren't just in Jerusalem and Judea, their synagogues were everywhere and everywhere they went. They took a hope and an expectation that a deliverer would come, a Messiah would come, that there wasn't a multiplicity of gods, that there was one God, the Creator God, and that this Creator God had promised to send a Savior who would redeem His people and save the world. The Roman world was full of that kind of expectation in 4 B.C. when Augustus was the emperor. When Augustus became the emperor in Rome, he had even coins that were stamped with his image that said, there is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved. He believed he was the one who was to save the world. But it was during his reign when he issued a decree, a census to be taken, that Joseph and Mary made their way to Bethlehem and Jesus was born. Augustus gave way to Tiberius. Jesus was put to death under the emperor Tiberius. And then, of course, after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and poured out the Holy Spirit. And when you read the account of that in Acts chapter 2, it says, there were men in Jerusalem from all these nations under heaven, including, wait for it, Rome. They were there for the Feast of Pentecost. Jews, remember, they'd been spread all over the world. Now many have come back on pilgrimage to Rome. They came for Passover. They came for Pentecost. They celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, those those three great feasts. So probably think about it. If you were a Jew living in a far-off place like Tarsus, where Paul was from, or Rome, and you had the opportunity to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to go up to Jerusalem, to go up to Zion. It might be the one time in life you had the chance to do that. So you went, you went for Passover, and you stayed for Pentecost, and you were from Rome. You were one of the Jews who were from Rome, and then you heard Peter preach to you on the day of Pentecost. And you were one of those 3,000 people who were who heard Peter preach and you were cut to the heart and you repented and you got baptized and you became part of that believing community, well, they didn't all stay there. They went home. And where they went home to was Rome. And these new believers in Jesus multiplied in the city of Rome. But as you read through the New Testament, you'll discover that the early Christians, all Jews... In the early part of the Christian movement, the early part of the Jesus movement, they're all Jews, had great conflict among themselves. So the Jewish people who believed Jesus was the Messiah got into heavy disputes with the Jewish people who rejected the notion of a crucified Messiah. How could anybody be the Messiah who'd been hung on a cross? After all, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's what the law says. And so how could he possibly be the Messiah? Riots broke out in Rome between these people. And the Roman historian Suetonius notes that the riots over, this is what Suetonius wrote, a certain figure named Christus during the reign of the emperor Claudius made him banish the Jews from Rome. Claudius wasn't making any distinction between Jews who believe in a Messiah called Jesus and those who don't. All that he knew is that there were riots in Rome among the Jews, a lot of unhappiness over somebody named Christus. And it's so bad, we just got to get them out of here. So the Jews were banished from Rome. A couple of those folks in AD 49 who were banished from Rome were named Aquila and Priscilla. They were tent makers. And they ended up in a, in a city called Corinth down in, in Greece. And in Acts 18, it says that this guy Paul, who ended up writing Romans, ran into them there. And they started the church in Corinth together. Eventually, eventually Claudius' ban of the Jews was lifted. And the Jews began to go back home. Happened a few years later. So the Christians that were in Rome were Gentiles. And now, that's the only ones that were left. So they've been having kind of a Gentile only church for quite a while. And now all the Jewish believers are coming back. So now we've got the Jewish Christians that are coming back to Rome. And they come back. And have you ever gone back to your hometown and found out everything's shifted since you left? That's what happened. Who moved the furniture? They got back and they found this Christian community which had been left only in the hands of Gentiles and now they as Jewish believers, they're coming in as well. And so some of the Gentile believers could have easily said, well, we've been getting along just fine without you, thank you very much, and we have our ways of doing things. And a lot of the Jewish believers are going, yeah, but we have our ways of doing things and how are we all going to work this out? How are we going to be Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus and how's that whole thing going to work? And Priscilla and Aquila knew somebody who had something to say about that. Paul, of course, wanted to get to Rome. But he was delayed. He was delayed. And now we can look at Romans chapter 1. Let's turn there. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I want to get there. I want to come and spend time with you. I want to do ministry, but I can't right now. And this gives us a little indication as to why he was writing the letter. We'll come back to this in a little while, but I just want to touch base with you this morning on it. In Romans chapter 1, let's pick it up in verse 11. I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I've planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. I wanted to come to you so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul wanted to get there. He's never been to Rome. So when we read Romans, we're reading a letter from Paul to people in a church he's never visited. It's a kind of letter of introduction from Paul. Here's the message that I preach. Here's the mission that I'm on. Why was he delayed? Well, the reason he was delayed, he talks about over in Romans 15. Let's go over there. Romans chapter 15. So if you go almost all the way to the end, he comes back to this thought. Romans 15. For this reason, verse 22, <clears throat> it's as though from Romans 1:11 to the end of 15, it's a giant parenthesis, and thank God for the parenthesis, right? So, verse 22, "'For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints.'" For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yeah, Yes, they were pleased to do so. They are indebted to them. If the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them in their material things. And therefore, when I've finished this, and I've put my seal on this fruit of theirs... I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I'll come full of the blessing of Christ. So Paul says, I'm, I'm going to get to you, but first I've got to go to Jerusalem. Now, we'll get into where he's at. Where he's at is in Corinth, and we'll get into why he's in Corinth and when he's writing. But he says, I've got to get to Jerusalem because I've got this offering that I have to get to Jerusalem for the relief of the poor there that's being sent by the Gentiles. Gentile people are sending Gentile money to Jerusalem to relieve the poor. Now, do you know anything about how Gentile money was viewed in Jerusalem? You couldn't use that money in the temple. You had to exchange it. That led to a very interesting incident in Jesus' ministry with changing the money into temple currency. Gentile money wasn't welcome in Jerusalem, but the Gentiles are sending money. Paul's bringing that offering. But when he gets to Jerusalem, something happens there. Paul says, I want to get to you guys in Rome, and when I get there, I'm going to stop there because where where does he say he's actually wanting to get to? Spain. Now, remember, Spain, remember seeing that on the map, the Roman Empire map? Spain's the furthest away you can get. It was the end of the known world. In other words, Paul says, I've preached everywhere I can preach here. Now, where have I got to go? I've got to go to the ends of the earth. I've got to get clear over there, Spain. The, The The flag of the kings of Spain, until Christopher Columbus, had a Latin phrase on it. Ne plus ultra. Nothing beyond this. This is it. After Columbus got back, they changed the phrase to to plus ultra, there is more beyond. That literally happened. So Paul Paul is saying I got to get to the ends of the earth and I'm going to stop in Rome on my way to Spain. I'm going to stop with you guys. But first I got to go to Jerusalem. When he got to Jerusalem, you'll read about it. We'll read about it in the book of Acts. He got there and a riot broke out over Paul. And when the riot broke out, the people were going to kill him, but a Roman soldier rescued him. And they carried him, these Roman soldiers. The Romans were the defenders of Christianity. And then Paul stood up and he spoke to the congregation that was there that day, the mob, if is the better term, and he spoke in Hebrew to them. And it says when they when they spoke, when he spoke in Hebrew, they got very quiet and they listened. To the Roman centurion, he spoke in Greek, and he told them he was a Roman citizen. And so Paul was protected by the Romans. He was protected from his persecutors. But charges were brought against him, charges of insurrection. And so Paul said, I'm not guilty, and he appealed to the highest court. And the highest court was Caesar. I appealed to Caesar. And when a Roman citizen, Paul was a Roman citizen as well as a Jewish Pharisee, when a Roman citizen appealed to Caesar, that Roman citizen had the right to go before the Caesar and appeal his case. Of course, the Caesar at the time was a man named Nero. Paul got himself an all-expenses-paid trip to Rome. Now, it wasn't exactly business-class seating. When you read about that journey, it was harrowing, and he eventually gets to Rome, and he's there under house arrest under Nero, who would become the first great persecutor of the believers. Who are the important emperors to know during this kind of introductory phase of things? Well, here's the ones you need to know. You need to know Augustus. That's emperor during the birth of Jesus. Tiberius was the emperor when Jesus was crucified. Claudius was emperor when the Jews were expelled from Rome temporarily. Nero, the first Roman persecutor. And Titus was the person who later was emperor. He was the general who in 70 AD conquered Jerusalem, And that gets us to Paul writing, Jerusalem, writing to the Romans in the mid-50s. He writes to them. And it's our task to study it, to try to discover what he wanted to communicate to these people about the gospel. And that leads us to what I have put in your outline as the folly of this project. Why? Why call it folly? Why? Because I I just got to tell you, standing and teaching our way through Romans is one of the most challenging things we can do. St. Augustine, who wrote City of God and On Christian Teaching and De Trinitate, I mean, he wrote Confessions and so much. He attempted to write a commentary on Romans and he gave up after seven verses. So, What Augustine gave up on, you and me, we got it. (laughs) That alone should give us pause to say, well, we have to approach this humbly. Chrysostom, the great preacher in Constantinople, wrote, Romans is incomparable. Chrysostom had, this is the greatest preacher of the ancient patristic fathers, That name, his name was John, but we call him Chrysostom, which means golden tongue, all right? The golden tongue had Romans read to him aloud twice a week so he could penetrate its meaning and have its message penetrate him. In more modern times, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great pastor at Westminster Chapel, taught the book of Romans you and I, you might have been alarmed by the fact that I was suggesting we're going to take a couple of years on this. Lloyd-Jones taught it every Friday night between 1955 and 1968. 366 sessions to unpack the book of Romans. All right? I mean, there's people who graduated and went to heaven at chapter 7 or something, didn't they? That's, that's kind of going things a little bit too long. But if you stop and you look at it, you think about the early fathers like Irenaeus and Origen and Clement, Clement of Rome who all quote from the book of Romans about Augustine's own conversion and what happened to him. When you think about the influence of this particular book, it's extraordinary. Let me read to you Augustine's conversion. I cast myself down, I know not how, under a certain fig tree, giving full vent to my tears, and the floods of my eyes gushed out. And not indeed in these words, yet to this purpose I spoke unto you, and you, O Lord, how long? How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Remember not our former iniquities. I felt that I was held by them. I sent up my sorrowful words. How long? How long? Tomorrow and tomorrow? Why not now? Why not? Is there this hour an end to my uncleanness? Augustine's deeply aware of his, his fallen condition, his sinfulness. Where's my cleansing? So I was speaking and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when, lo, I heard from a neighboring house a voice. As if a boy or a girl, I know not, chanting and off-repeating, Tole Legge, tole Legge, take up and read, take up and read. Instantly, my countenance altered. I began to think most intently whether children were wont in any kind of play to sing such words, nor could I remember ever to have heard the like. So little children's ditty, tole legge, tole legge, comes drifting over the wall as Augustine's in deep sorrow. And he hears those words, take up and read, take up and read. What does he take up and read? He takes up and reads what you're looking at on the screen. So checking the torn of my tears, I arose, interpreting it to be none other than the command from God to open the book and read the first chapter I should find. I returned to the place where Alpius was sitting, for there I had laid the volume of the apostle, Where I rose thence, I seized, I opened, and in silence I read that section on which my eyes first fell, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in clambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to concupiscence, Romans 13. No further did I read, nor needed I, for instantly, at the end of that sentence, by a light, as it were, of serenity infused into my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away just pick up Romans he did and the greatest theologian in the ancient church was born again or listen to Luther I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression the justice of God the righteousness of God the justice of God because I took it to mean that justice is whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God. I hated him. Yet I clung to dear Paul, and I had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between The justice of God in the statement, the just shall live by faith. And then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on new meaning. And whereas before the phrase, the justice of God filled me with hate, now it came to me to be inexpressibly sweet. This passage of Paul, Romans 1, became to me the gate of heaven. John Wesley, 1738. He was standing in a street meeting outside St. Paul's in Aldersgate Street, and he, recording what happened that evening, wrote, That evening, reluctantly attending in Aldersgate, someone read from Luther's preface to the epistle of Romans. At 8.45 p.m., While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Augustine, Luther, Wesley... In the 20th century, Karl Barth and his commentary on Romans battling liberal theology. Joseph Fitzmaier, a church historian, wrote, One can write a history of Christian theology by surveying the ways in which Romans has been interpreted. Adolf Harnack wrote, Everywhere it's been Paul. One of the people who was in our congregation in Austin was an Asian Chinese man named Wei-San Wei. and Wei-San Wei was a student at the University of Texas, engineering student from Singapore. He was a Buddhist. And he saw a girl in his class, another Chinese girl. Her name was Donna, and he liked what he saw. And so he wanted to ask Donna out, but she rebuffed him and said, no, I'm a Christian. I cannot go out with you. You're not a Christian. And he said, well, I don't know anything about your religion. And she said to him, go read the book of Romans and get back to me. (laughs) The day before, Mormon missionaries had been at his door and left a Bible. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. And he picked that Bible up. And he read, starting in Romans chapter 1, and he got no further than verse 18 about idolatry. And all of his idols passed before his eyes. And Waisan told me he fell on his face. He knew he was an idolater. And he knew that Christ would save him. And he was instantly converted. And then he went on to Covenant Seminary, and he and Donna got married, and six or seven or eight, or when I last counted, children later, they're serving Jesus fruitfully and faithfully. The book of Romans has changed history. This epistle is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, the most pure gospel, that is to say the glad tidings of what we call the gospel and also a light and a way into the whole scripture. The sum, the whole cause of the writings of this epistle is to prove that a man is justified by faith alone, which proposition whoso denieth to him is not only this epistle and all that Paul writeth but also the whole scripture so locked up that he will never understand it to his soul's health. Luther said, this epistle in truth. The most important document in the New Testament, the gospel in its purest expression, not only is it well worth a Christian's while to know it word for word by heart, but also to meditate on it day by day. It is the soul's daily bread and can never be read too often or studied too much. The more you probe into it, the more precious it becomes and the better its flavor. Martin Luther. Calvin wrote, when any man gains a knowledge of this epistle, Romans, he has an entrance open to him of the most hidden treasures in all of Scripture. And it's to those treasures we will turn next week in opening up Romans chapter 1. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you sent your son into a time-space world to liberate those who'd been bound by legion and you've gone on liberating them. Not only did you turn Saul, the Pharisee, into Paul, the apostle, but you have, via what he wrote, changed countless hearts since that time. We pray that as we study this epistle together, we too will be changed and find our hearts more engaged in the worship of you because of your mercy and grace, more in love with you because of the beauty of your salvation, and more committed to the message of your liberating mercy in all the world. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we've got a few minutes for questions. Yes? Okay. Yeah, no. Yeah, that one? There you go. That is that one. Those aren't all the emperors, but those are specific ones. There are other emperors in, in between. But, I mean, like Caligula shows up in the list and others. But these are the primary ones dealing with first century believers, okay? Yeah. You don't need to go back so she can write that down, but the one you just had up what is that. That's a Greek text uh, fragment of the book of Romans. That per- well, well, uh, the translator or the scribe on that particular text, yeah, I'm not sure. Do we have any authentic copies of the original text? Well, the, well the, we have very early fragments, very early fragments. There's, there's no full, complete, like, here's from, like, one of the original copies of Romans, you know, that, that Phoebe carried. We'll get into the textual stuff next week, just so you know. But um, basically, Paul would have written it by a secretary who identifies himself in the text in Romans chapter 16, I, Tertius, who write this letter. So he's the person who's penning it. It was carried by Phoebe from Corinth to Rome. Those originals, that original text, if you will, has long since disappeared. But the copies of that which uh, there are still fragments of those that go very early. And uh, the quotes from Romans in all the other ancient fathers are so pervasive that you can reconstruct it and compare them against, say, other fragments or manuscripts where you go, well, I'm not sure which of these manuscripts is, which, if there's a, like, if, if there's a difference on a word, like which words used, you can tell from all those. So the original's in Greek, and that's a good example of a fragment. Does that help yeah great question others there are, yeah that's there, there are no all questions are good anybody okay yeah the textus receptus is a greek text that was prepared by erasmus who was the leading humanist scholar of the 16th century. And he based that on the scholarship he had available to him at the time, and he, uh, of course, was heavily dependent on Jerome as well and his Latin translation of other Greek texts. So if you – if uh, the, the, the sort of um, – theme of the humanists, and that, that, by the way, doesn't have anti-Christian overtones like it does now, but the 16th century humanists was ad fontes, back to the sources. So they were doing the level best they could with is going back in Greek texts as much as they could. And so he created this text of the New Testament, uh, which was the primary, it's not the soul, but the primary text on which the authorized version was created in English under uh, James the uh, First later. So, what's called the King James Version. Um, Erasmus is earlier, of course. He's he's at the time of Luther, but that text was highly regarded and it was used as well by Tyndale, and and uh, others. So, but the but that's the Textus Receptus. Great, great question. Others. All right. How many of you learned something today you didn't know before? Cool. Then you could come back. That would be excellent. All right, Diana, over to you.